even though women participated in every important art movement of their times, we're told they were rarely present in surveys of American art. Laredo Taft noted in his 1924 History of American Sculpture that there were more than 100 women sculptors working in New York City alone. Charlotte Rubinstein explained in 1990 they were neoclassicists who carried out marble sculptures in Rome. They studied in Paris and modeled Rodinesque statues. They were in the Ashcan School and among the handful of modernists who brought cubism and abstract sculpture to the United States. They were prominent exponents of direct carving in the 1920s and 1930s. They were also among the leaders of the Harlem Renaissance of black artists. And during the Depression, they carried out commissions for the Federal Art Project. After World War II, they were abstract expressionists, minimalists, welders in steel, and shapers of neon light. Despite this continuous record of achievement, recognition for women's work has been sporadic and long overdue. In the early 20th century, women won major commissions, and in the 1930s, the representation of women sculptors in major exhibitions was as high as 25%. Ada Rainey wrote in 1917, Today the shackles are being cast off. And Elizabeth Lonergan in a 1911 Harper's Bazaar wrote, Every city of importance claims a woman sculptor, while in all parts of the country we find evidence of their work, no longer is there discrimination as to the character of the work they can do. In all contracts, they enter as man's equal. That from Heather Anderson's essay, Making Women Artists Visible. We'll soon learn about Hope Horn and her seven foot five inch wide by nine foot welded steel plate sculpture titled Red Wing, Horn, a native of Scranton and a graduate of the Tyler School at Temple, was a painter, sculptor, educator who worked in abstract and representational ways and is remembered as a defining force in the arts community of Scranton. Red Wing stands on the grounds of the Everhart Museum at Naog Park there. And the Everhart Museum has in its collection many works by women artists from the earliest times in America to the present day. And today, at the beginning of Women's History Month, the Everhart is opening an exhibition to celebrate some of the collection's finest pieces. The show is titled Women in Art, and it will be on view through the summer. The museum was founded in 1908 and is especially pleased to present this exhibition to mark its 115th anniversary year. Darlene Miller-Lanning, director of the Hope Horn Gallery at the University of Scranton, paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about the show and to introduce us to some of the artists we'll meet. Very broadly, the show is Women in Art, and they are selections from the Everhart Museum collection. So that's pretty broad, even, even so. But the show had a beginning a few years ago. The Everhart Museum was undergoing some renovations, and so a lot of their work was in storage for a short amount of time. And 2020 was coming up, which was going to be the 100th anniversary of the 1920-19th Amendment for women having the right to vote. And so we thought at the Hope Horn Gallery that we would like to do a show celebrating that and featuring maybe some of the works from the Everhart Museum that weren't on display. So that would be an opportunity to present them at a really special time when their own home was undergoing some, some upgrade. So we brought them down to the University of Scranton 
and began to present a show down there. We had it up, it was hung, and I think it ran for a little while. But the spring of 2020 was also the beginning of COVID. While we had a, a campus audience, we were close to public receptions and events with the general community. So it was a beautiful show, and it was there, and it had a really important connection to that historical event. But like so many things, because of COVID, there's a little bit of lag time now in terms of the, the real community involvement and celebration that could be attached to that. So the Everhart's gone through its renovations, and so the works are back home, and we had the opportunity to install them there in the gallery on the first floor. So they look really beautiful. Uh, so it, it has a, a double double life in a lot of ways. <laughs> Thank heavens, because it would be such a loss not to have a chance to see these pieces. Darling, you've been in the world of visual arts here in our region for so long. You undoubtedly know the Everhart Collection very well. I had I had known about a lot of the major pieces. So there is a really beautiful folk art collection at um, the Everhart Museum, the Robertson Collection. And it was a collection that a woman had been instrumental in organizing. So there's a woman represented Mrs. Robertson as a collector, uh, not even in terms of a work of her or by her, but in terms of bringing pieces together. Uh, some of the images that come out of that collection are early um, American folk art pieces that are of or by women. So there is an image of a child with a flag, a little girl in a red dress with an American flag. Uh, but there are also needlework pieces. There's a scene of Niagara Falls done in embroidery, which was a very traditional thing for women. Even if they were not encouraged to go into the arts, they found forms of artistic expression in uh, what were considered traditionally women's mediums, like textiles or sometimes ceramics or clay work or something related to painting, but maybe not as time-consuming or requiring so many resources as oil painting. So like watercolors. So there's another um, little piece that represents a morning picture for a family, the McLean family. And it shows some traditional imagery done in watercolor of an urn and a weeping willow and a mourning woman. So the idea of women in the early part of American history being represented in folk art, but also having these kind of other outlets for artistic production themselves. And another Niagara Falls piece that would have been done by a woman as a copy piece. So it is an oil on canvas, but there's another painting that would have been produced a little bit prior to that by like the 1850s, 1860s. And it would have been publicized and printed in magazines or, or guidebooks. And so it would have been something that she maybe copied from the media rather than an image that she herself had developed. So you recognize the forms of the trees and the waterfalls. And so that was that was one way that women became in, involved in art early on, rather than seeing it as a profession necessarily. It was something that was sometimes considered useful in terms of, of again, needlework or, or craft materials. The craft is kind of a funny word, but something that had a functional kind of side to it. But also in terms of the idea that if a woman was able to make pleasing arrangements of forms and colors and shapes and materials, she could do that in the context of her home. So she would have a beautiful home. She could set a beautiful table. She would understand flowers and linen and clothing. And uh, she would be a credit to her family because she would have these abilities and this sense of artfulness and taste. So that was, that was sort of an early form of it. Then in the early part of the 20th century, there's, there's sort of this movement where women in the arts become more more professional in that they pursue an arts education 
and then they, they often pursue careers coming out of that. So there are a number of pieces there that represent that sort of transition from this sort of domestic connection and folk connection to something that's a little bit more professionalized uh, in terms of art education and uh, a career in art. There's a really beautiful, large portrait by Robert Henry, who again is not a woman artist, but he's painting a woman artist from the Wilkes-Barre area named Edith Reynolds, who came from a, a very respectable, prosperous family in Wilkes-Barre. And decided she wanted to study art, and so she studied at the Henry School in New York. So to study at the Henry School was daring, to put it mildly. Henry was, Henry was a person who had broken with tradition, and he was a member of what was later known as the Ashcan School. He was associated with a group called the Eight. They were showing in the Macbeth Gallery. So they were called the Ashcan School because the thought was that they painted things that were inappropriate, like neighborhoods where immigrants came in in the Lower East Side in New York. But for the Ashcan artists, that was a, an area that was very full of vitality and, and energy and language and culture and all kinds of different things mingling together like internationally. But from a, a proper, respectable, traditional, you know, sort of art critic's point of view, it wasn't the stuff that you would usually see in a painting. So to study with Henry was, was taking a risk. And Edith Reynolds did it. So she also commissioned him to do a portrait, and there were two that were done. Uh, one is in the National Gallery now in Washington, D.C., and the other is here at the Everhart. So you can't beat that. That's top shelf, right? <laughs> That's really, really beautiful material. And she is standing in a, a dark brown dress with this very pale skin on a dark background with dark hair. So it's a, a range of these dark kind of colors, and, and yet she stands very very upright. She has this, this great posture, and, and she just has this very determined look on her face, you know, that she's going to study and pursue art. There's a painting by her in the show. It's a landscape of sort of the northeastern Pennsylvania region with the green hills and mountains and a, a thunderstorm going over the valley. And she was from Wilkes-Barre, but the family also had a home in Bear Creek. So she was connected to, again, kind of the outer outer landscape more nature sort of settings that I think you see represented in that work. And then next to her hangs, that that's probably the Henry portrait of Edith Reynolds, probably one of the biggest paintings in the gallery, if not the biggest. Uh, but then next to it is probably one of the smallest. And <laughs> it's a drawing of a, a lady and a newsboy, a very small little sketch by a woman named Amy Londoner who had been Edith's classmate at the Henry School. So Amy was originally from Denver, and she had come to New York and pursued the arts, lived for a long time with her sister, worked as an artist, and then uh, the two sisters, as was the case with so many people in the early 20th century, had health issues. Um, modern medicine, you know, wasn't what we know of now, so a lot of people were susceptible to chronic things like tuberculosis and various illnesses like that. So Amy's sister eventually passed away, and she herself was ill. And throughout that amount of time, from the years when they were students together at the Henry School, uh, she and Edith Reynolds had kept in touch. And there are letters back and forth to them, you know, from one to the other, where they talk about various things. And Edith ultimately invites her to stay with her in northeastern Pennsylvania. So they have a lifelong friendship. And to see the two pieces there together in the gallery is really a, a wonderful thing. So one is this large painting of Edith Reynolds almost full length, and then the other is this tiny little drawing of a full-length woman with a little newsboy, like, looking at her. So again, a newsboy is very much Ashcan kind of style, uh, subject matter. 
And then there are two other sort of group portraits of women. One is by an artist whose last name is Coates, and it shows sort of women from yeah, maybe the, the 19, 18, 19, 20 kind of time frame. Very elegant, beautiful blues and, and you know, at a, at a tea table, maybe having tea or breakfast in the morning or something. And like these kind of light, airy pastels. And then the other is by an artist named Priscilla Longshore Garrett, who was initially from Philadelphia, but came and settled in Scranton for a while and worked around Old Forge. But she has a, a painting called Tete a Tete, and it's very brightly colored. And instead of these soft, light pastels, it's like orange and purple. These really vivid, <laughs> you know, kind of almost expressionistic sorts of color. And it shows two women who are having drinks. And as opposed to those very sort of delicate um, traditional ladies, they have these really bright kind of clothes and these large hats and these red painted fingernails. <laughs> so much, much more 1930s, 40s kind of feeling to that piece. Uh, there's another landscape by a painter named Mary Butler, who again came out of the Philadelphia region and traveled and did a lot of landscapes in sort of a more modernist kind of style. So those are, those are kind of a grouping that we have. And then the other wall has Violet Oakley. Violet Oakley was an artist who was associated, again, with the Philadelphia region. So there were a lot of artists here who came from there, as well as New York. So both of them were big centers for the arts in the early 20th century. But Oakley is known for doing the murals in the Pennsylvania State Capitol. So it was unusual to be a woman who pursued art education. It was unusual to be a woman who pursued a career as an artist, and it was really unusual for a woman to receive a commission to decorate a really large government building. So Violet Oakley had an incredible career. The painting that is on display is from 1920, and it's called The Weavers of New Hope. And it represents a friend of Oakley's who had been an artist who lived outside of the Philadelphia region in a, in a town called New Hope. And New Hope had been at the time kind of an artist colony. It still is. I mean, a lot of artists and galleries and things are there. But there had been a weaving studio there, and Oakley's friend, you know, was, was at the weaving studio. And so the portrait is of her friend, who was a really beautiful, strong, classical-looking woman. And the portrait is actually modeled on the figure of one of the sibyls in Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling. If you see those two the, the composition of those two figures are very close. And as a muralist, Oakley knew about Michelangelo. She, <laughs> she had looked at Michelangelo. But this very uh, powerful, strong kind of classical woman is seated at a loom, and she's holding up a piece of fabric that she's woven. And so the title is The Weaver of New Hope. And literally, she's a weaver, and she lives in New Hope. So that's a very accurate description. But it's from 1920. And I can't help but think that she's not just weaving a textile. I think the idea that women had now earned the right to vote means that she's going to use her skills and her knowledge and awareness of the world around her to weave something else, to weave new hope for her nation because she now has the right to vote. And so it's gorgeous. <laughs> I mean, it's a really, really, really beautiful painting and I think a, a beautiful idea again and, and at a time when that anniversary is still so close with us and since there's been a little bit of a delay with this this virus um women's history month is a good time to kind of think about that a little bit and keep that in context we can't take everything you for can't granted. take things for granted and things always need to be considered you need to always be aware of what has happened and what could happen you need to keep that in perspective
and I think Oakley painted looking forward. She she painted in her own time, of course, and you know she she understood what was happening in her own lifetime. But I think she thought that those choices would pave the way for things that were going to come. So she very much looked ahead. And how is that painting in the collection? Do you know? From what I understand, and there are probably people who could track this much more carefully than I do, but from what I understand from some basic records, it came from a donation from a bank in Hazleton. And again, I haven't tracked a lot of it as closely as I could, but I think that early in the 20th century, Oakley had been doing a lot of programs around Pennsylvania. She was presenting things. There were prints that were traveling. There were different kind of programs for school kids, you know, things like this. And I think at one point she had been connected somehow with the Hazleton area, and that was probably one of the ways that that image came to be in that location. The sense we're getting, darling, from just the images you're describing is the wide variety and styles, perhaps the more conventional with the tea service, but the tete-a-tete has the more modern sense. We leave this exhibition with a feeling that these women, their images, their involvements were rich and complex. Yeah, they're, they're very involved in a lot of things. There are a lot of things that you can further explore, and, and hopefully the exhibition, it's not the beginning and the end of the discussion of women in art at the Everhart. The, the last wall in, in the exhibition has more recent works, so from the 30s through like the 70s, that kind of time frame. There's a textile by Ruth Reeves, who was involved in textile design, and people who were working with projects related to things like Radio City Music Hall, so that, that kind of time frame. And, and some of the early modernist stuff that you think of in New York City. There's a piece by a woman named Grace Borgnicht, which is sort of a abstracted watercolor of a breaker in the area. And then there's an ink wash drawing by Bernice DeVorzon, which is very abstract expressionist. So there's a whole kind of abstraction current that starts to happen as you get into the latter part of the, the 20th century. And then there's one more, which is a bust of a woman by Hope Horn, and Hope worked in Scranton for over 50 years as an artist and an art educator and into the, the late 20th century and was really a person who could do many, many things. She was a painter, but she was also a sculptor. She painted very realistically, and yet she could also do things that were very abstract. And so I think some of those lines for her were kind of arbitrary, that, that you didn't need to choose one. You could, you could do all of them at once. <laughs> <laughs> in a lot of different ways. So there's a very realistic bust of a woman, because it's a woman. I mean, obviously, that's the connection with the show. But throughout the museum, there are other galleries that feature work by Hope. So if you go upstairs, there's a really large piece called Red Wall, and it's large. It, it, it's a large painting. It's literally the size of a wall. But it's it's conceptual in that it's it's idea-based, because the Red Wall looks like these very geometric areas of reds and oranges that might be like a wall and a floor at, at an angle of the floor. And then far away, you see part of a very realistic table. And then there's a very realistic painting on the wall. And then in the installation, she wanted to include a chair in front of it. So there's a real chair. And then there's this kind of abstracted wall. But yet on the abstracted wall, there's these very realistic paintings of furniture and paintings. So there's a couple of levels of like perception and reality that are happening. And then if you go outside the Everhart, there's a very abstract Hope Horn sculpture called Red Wing. 
And if you look at red wall and you look at red wing, you could almost kind of fold the painting up and get the sculpture. <laughs> you know? So it's very planar ideas of things that, that are flat and angular and folded. So it crosses over through a number of her pieces, and it's really beautiful to see that in such a way that it's almost not, it's not, you can't contain it. You know, the painting sort of like continues into the chair that's in the hallway, that's in the gallery, that takes you into the museum, that takes you into the park, that takes you to the sculpture. <laughs> so, so it's almost like it, it can't just confine itself to one set place or one set kind of form of expression. So hopefully the show itself kind of does that. It, it takes you forward and it kind of unfolds and leads you to other things. Because there are a lot of other things throughout the museum that could have been included in the show, but the, the room is only so big. <laughs> Darlene Miller-Lanning, director of the Hope Horn Gallery at the University of Scranton. Dr. Miller-Lanning speaking with us about women in art the exhibition opening today, March 2nd, at the Everhart Museum in Scranton in celebration of Women's History Month. The show will be on view through summer 2023. For more information, everhart-museum.org, E-V-E-R-H-A-R-T-museum.org. The Everhart Museum was founded in 1908 and this year is celebrating its 115th anniversary the Everhart Museum of Natural History, Science, and Art is the largest general museum in northeastern Pennsylvania, located in Naog Park, 1901 Mulberry Street in Scranton. Again, Women in Art opening today and on view through summer 2023. For more information on the web, everhart-museum.org, E-V-E-R-H-A-R-T-Museum.org.